Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. When I was a child, one of the things that I enjoyed the most, and some of you will understand this, was going to the mall. Some of you may remember what those were, indoor malls. And going to Aladdin's castle. This was nirvana for a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old. And I remember when I went to play my favorite game, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Galaga. I'm sure you are familiar with some of these. You would, you would put money in the token machine And most kids would put in a few dollars, or they would put in five dollars. But my grandmother would sometimes take me to Aladdin's castle. And there was a special treat. I really don't remember how much it was. But you got a bucket of tokens. An entire bucket. And when I would go with my grandmother, she would get me the bucket. And kids would look at me with jealousy beyond what you could possibly grasp or understand. And I remember one Saturday, I'm walking around with my bucket. And to be completely honest, I walked around as if I was going to be mugged and robbed at any moment. That's how sacred that bucket was. And I remember playing a game and a boy standing next to me from my school that I knew... And he looked down at the bucket and all the tokens. And he said, your grandmother must be filthy rich. And I said, she is. (laughs) As I grew older, I realized my grandmother was was not filthy rich. Not, Not even close. She had a a good job working at the courthouse, and she retired with a small pension, but by no stretch of the imagination was she overly wealthy. And a couple of more years passed, Vicky and I married. I was her only grandson from my father who passed away when I was young, and she died, and it was my responsibility as the only living relative left on that side of the family to handle her estate. And I, Vicki and I packed up her house and her meager possessions, and I remember going through her checkbook, going through years of her checkbook. And here's what I noticed, and here's what astounded me. That she was a faithful giver to the church. And she gave beyond 10%. Not only did she give a nice amount, a God-honoring, worshipful amount to the church, she also gave to various charities. And when you looked at her checkbook, when you looked at what she had, It didn't seem like that was possible, but she did. 
And as I, I realized as I was sitting at her kitchen table, a kitchen table that we still have in our family to this day, I remember thinking I was wrong. She was filthy rich. She understood what it meant to be blessed in Christ. She understood what it meant that God in His love for His children had poured out His spiritual blessings on her. As we come to this text this morning in Proverbs, we are going to be reminded that we cannot outgive God. It's just not possible. Because of Christ, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, His blessings to His people continually flow and they are vast and they are deep. So before we jump in with verse 7, I wanted to remind you of Proverbs and what it means from a distance. We talked about this last week. We discussed a summary of the book of Proverbs. I want to do it again. I will not continue to do this the rest of the summer. First of all, scholars say that there are four primary authors of this book. Solomon, the son of David, the Davidic king, Hezekiah, Azur, and Lemuel. The book began under Solomon and it finished in its present form sometime during the reign of Hezekiah, which would be 715 to 686 B.C. It is wisdom literature. Now, as I mentioned a second ago, we have been studying Zechariah. We've taken a break. And I've told you that Zechariah is Hebrew apocalyptic literature. And this book of the minor, this minor prophet, this book of the Old Testament, is extremely insightful as a literature, as genre, in terms of understanding, for example, Revelation in the New Testament. Proverbs is wisdom literature. Again, it's important when you come to the text, whether old or new, that you take the time to understand where you are in the Bible and what type of literature you are reading. You would not blindly walk into Barnes & Noble wanting, let's say, a book of historical fiction and just grab something and assume that that's what it is. You would look at the section, you would know where you are going, and you would know what type of book that you are reading. So it is wisdom literature. Now there are two main focuses of the book of Proverbs. The first is Solomon has written this book. He began this book for the kings of Israel so that they would fear God and they would seek godly wisdom as they in turn rule over his people. And secondly, it is a handbook of parental instruction. It is a tool for the parents of Israel to raise their covenant children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because God wants faithful people. He wants worshipers. That's what our covenant Lord desires. So let's begin by looking at verse 7. We talked about verses 1 through 6 last week. We're going to continue with verses 7 through 12. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh 
and refreshment to your bones. Now again, one of the primary themes that we're going to see in Proverbs this summer is the fear of the Lord. What, what does that mean? Here is a working definition that you can jot down in your Bible. Fear of the Lord is a worshipful recognition of God's holiness and grace. The fear of the Lord is a worshipful recognition of God's holiness and grace. And so you see in verse 8, the Lord is saying that if you will fear me, you will seek after me, you will trust in me and listen to me, there will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now this is outward imagery that points to inward reality. This is what I am going to do for you spiritually as your God when you trust in me and fear me and listen to me and obey me. Outward imagery of an inward reality. And so when you think about verses 7 and 8, and you think about who penned this, King Solomon, the Davidic king, the one who represented God to the people and the people to God. And we're getting a glimpse of a greater Davidic king who is going to come and who is going to serve God's people, except he will serve perfectly. And that is Jesus. And I could not help but think about what this text is sailing, saying. There will be healing in your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Healing and refreshment is an all-encompassing way of saying wholeness, completeness. That obeying God will lead to shalom. It will lead to a complete peacefulness that transcends and overwhelms the dysfunction and brokenness and fallenness of this world. Now, we know, because we're on this side of the cross, that there is no one except Jesus who perfectly listened to God. We know that Jesus is the only one who obeyed. And that by faith in Him, we receive the blessings that He has earned. And so through Jesus... We receive healing. Through Jesus, we receive freshment. We only receive it now in part. We will receive it in full in the age to come when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. But isn't it interesting that it's Jesus' flesh that was torn and it was Jesus' bones that were nailed to the cross that enables us to experience such healing and refreshment. And so as I was reflecting on Proverbs 3, as I was thinking about Jesus, the only perfect Israelite who obeyed, the one who received the blessings, the one who through faith gives us the blessings, His flesh torn, His bones crucified, so that we could experience shalom, it took me to Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. If you'll turn in the New Testament to Romans 8, let's be reminded of what Paul has to say. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Notice that. How will He not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This world is full of tribulation. This world is full of danger, persecution, famine, distress. The sword. It's a difficult and challenging world that we live in. One that is hard. And we come to these verses in Proverbs and it says, Obey and follow the Lord. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And then everything will be made right. And we wake up and we go, everything's not right. Everything's not good. From work, to home, to family, to all sorts of issues that we face. And we might look at Proverbs and go, I don't know that this this applies to me. And then Jesus shows up. And he says, yes, it does. Because I'm the one who is crucified. I am the one who obeyed perfectly. I am the one who listened to the Father. I am the one who pursued His will. I have done all of this for you. So that you will experience shalom one day. So that the truths of Proverbs will be a reality for your soul. And nothing, nothing is going to separate us. That's how much I love you. And that is what I came to do. That is what I have accomplished for your sake. Verse 9 and 10. Footnote. I have not mentioned money all that often in the course of of planting this church. Money can be a challenging topic for people who are new to the church, people who haven't been to church in a while. The church gets the perception in society that we are greedy and corrupt. And so I'm very cautious when I talk about money because I know that some people view it in a certain way, in a certain perspective. But one of the things that we do here at Trinity, one of the things that's a part of our theological tradition is that we preach through books of the Bible, often chapter by, well, always chapter by chapter, 
verse by verse, and even sometimes word by word. And so when the text brings me to this, then this is what I have to talk about as a preacher of the Word of God. So let us look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So you see in verse 9 and 10 that giving to the church, giving to the Lord is first of all a tribute to the king. Now, that was a common practice in the ancient Middle East. That when you would come into the presence of the king, when you were a visiting dignitary, when you represented another nation, you would bring a tribute. You were recognized, you were recognizing the fact that this person was a king, that he was sovereign, that he was powerful, that he was majestic, that he was important. We see this every year at Christmas. The wise men, representatives of a foreign king, bringing gifts to baby Jesus because they recognize he is someone special. He is important. And so when we give... Remember that it is a tribute. That your gift, your offering is a way to recognize that God is greater than you. That He is holy and sovereign and powerful. That He is the ruler of the whole universe. And that all that you have comes from Him. And so you are in giving, in tithing, you are submitting yourself to Him and you're recognizing that truth. It is a tribute. It is an act of worship. Secondly, it is a realignment. So, I was looking at my wife's tires the other day. And... I realized that they are in terrible condition. And she needs new tires. And her car needs to be realigned. That is drifting to the left. And realignment is very important. Because when you put new tires on your car, that will help your tires stay in good condition for a longer period of time. Most of you know this. And so when we tithe, when we give to the Lord, we are realigning ourselves. We are saying it's not all about me. It's not about my selfish pursuits. It's not about what I want. But it's about the Lord. That I have been blessed that it comes from on high, and that I give back a portion because I'm recognizing He's first, I'm second. It's a realignment of our soul, if you will. And thirdly, sticking with the car imagery, is gospel fuel. That when you give to the Lord, and you give to His church, 
you are providing the fuel for ministry. You, for example, Trinity, you enable us to exist as a new church. It's more than just paying my salary. It's renting this location. It's helping Reed become a minister by going to seminary. Helping Anthony become a minister of the gospel going to seminary. It's it's providing a ministry to the children of our church. It's supporting missionaries and church planning ministries. It's supporting our denomination. We are a small new church, but your giving is gospel fuel that enables us to step forward in the name of Christ and proclaim His grace, His mercy, His love, all that He has done for me and for you. So giving is tribute, is realignment, it is gospel fuel. Verse 10. Barns will be filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. Great agricultural metaphors for an agricultural society. You could translate it Your 401k will be full. And at the price of gas these days, you could say your cars will be full of unleaded gas. You will be wealthy. You will be blessed. You will be taken care of. Now here's the thing. You're reading this, and you might say to yourself, my 401k is not full. Some of you might say, I don't even know what a 401k is. Finances are tight. My barn is not full. I don't even have a barn. You're looking at the world and you're looking at life and you're saying, I I love God. I am seeking to obey Him and listen to His Word. And yet, My life is a struggle. I do not have a winery. Why? And as I've mentioned in the past in other sermon series, there is a component to this that is the already, not yet. That the kingdom of God has come, partly, but it has not come in all its fullness. And so we have to understand Proverbs and we have to understand all of Scripture in light of this theological truth. The kingdom of God is here, but only partly. So we often joke with our children, this will be yours one day. And I'm sure some of the things that we mention They're excited about, and some of the things, they probably roll their eyes and really don't want to fool with it. But the truth is, it's theirs, but not yet. So the kitchen table that I mentioned that belonged to my grandmother, I have so many memories of her sitting at that table. She she didn't sit in the den in a comfortable couch or recliner, most of the time she sat in the kitchen at that table. That's where she did all of her work. 
That's where she just did everything. She talked on the phone. My memories of her are at that table. And so I desperately want my children, one of them, you can't cut it in half, to have this table one day. Now they probably rolling their eyes. They can sit at the table. We play cards at the table. We play Monopoly at that table. We have memories at that table, but it's my table. One day it will be theirs. Already, not yet. And so when we come to the text and when we come to this and we see full barns and plenty of wine, it begs the question. And it's the dynamic of the already, not yet. If you are in Christ, you will receive the covenant blessings that He has earned. They are yours. As I mentioned earlier from Romans, nothing will separate you from that. God loves you. You are His child. He has a plan for you. He is going to bless you forevermore. But in the here and now, the already, it may be hard. But the fuller picture, the bigger picture, is seen in the not yet, or understood, although it's not clearly seen, in the not yet. We trust in the promises of our covenant Lord that what's coming is full blessing in Christ. Ligon Duncan, the chancellor of RTS, I was looking at a sermon that he preached on this text, and one of the things that he said I really liked in regard to verses 9 and 10, in terms of blessing that we may not be able to see. But it's a promise, he says, that when you make God your priority, you'll never, ever regret it. In other words, when you put your trust in Him, when you follow after Jesus, when you turn your life over to Him, it may not always be easy in this life, but you will never regret it. The covenant promises, the blessings of Christ belong to you. Verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I remember as a child being disciplined by my father. Remember, my mother and my dad married when I was six, my second father. And I remember for the next couple of years when he would discipline me, Internally, I would think to myself, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? Mom? Mom, do you know what's going on here? Mom, are you just going to kind of let this happen? Not only has he taken away my sugar cereal, which was really rough. Again, remember, he's a dentist. But now he's disciplining me. And I didn't like it. But I began to understand that this man loves me. And he cares for me. And that the reason that he is doing this is not to ruin my day, to make my life difficult. The reason he's doing this is he wants to shape and mold me to be a better son. 
And I'm thankful that the Lord allowed me to see His discipline as love, and it didn't produce rebellion in my heart. And so when we come to verses 11 and 12, this is what King Solomon is saying to us. It's what he's saying to the kings of Israel. It's what he's saying to the Israelites. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't be weary when He takes you through difficult and hard times, know that because He loves you and He cares for you, He's doing this for a reason. Trust in the fact that He delights over you. Isn't that a beautiful verse? That your God, your Father, is not angry with you. He's not mad at you. He delights in you. I was talking with my son last week about punishments and discipline and how hard that is as a father. Like I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. And even in times when I'm disciplining him, the overarching thing that's running through my heart and my mind is, you're my namesake. I love you. I delight in you. I'm doing this to help you. I'm not taking pleasure in this. I delight in you. And that's the Lord. That's our Father in heaven. So A.W. Pink, a theologian that, that lived many years ago, has a wonderful quote regarding discipline for the Christian believer. I don't as you know, I don't use quotes a lot and I don't use lengthy ones. But this is a lengthy one, but bear with me because it's good. When the believer is smarting under the rod, let him not say, God is now punishing me for my sins. That can never be. That is most dishonoring to the blood of Christ. God is correcting thee in love, not smiting in wrath. Nor should the Christian regard the chastening of the Lord as a sort of necessary evil to which he must bow as submissively as possible. No. It proceeds from God's goodness and faithfulness and is one of the greatest blessings for which we have to thank Him. Chastisement evidences our divine sonship. The father of a family does not concern himself with those on the outside, but those within he guides and disciplines to make them conform to his will. Chastisement is designed for our good, to promote our highest interest. Look beyond the rod to the all-wise hand that wields it. The difficulties of this life are used, hear this, the difficulties of this life are used to draw us near to God. Pain is often the megaphone that God uses to get our attention. My high school football coach wore a whistle. And he always wore it behind him. He rarely used it. But when you saw him turn that whistle around, fear struck your heart. Because you knew he really, really wanted your attention. Because you were really 
doing something wrong. The difficulties and travails of this life is a way in which God summons us to Himself and reminds us He is sovereign, He is in control, and we need Him. He is all we have. And we should go to Him in prayer, and we should run to His Word for comfort, and we should know that Jesus has been afflicted so that we do not have to experience ultimate and final affliction. His flesh was torn. His bones were crucified. So that you can come to the Father now and forevermore. And you can rejoice in good and in bad because He delights over you. Trinity, take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank You that Your Word is true and that it will last forever. God, help us to hear the wise words of King Solomon in Proverbs 3. May we give You all the honor and the glory that You so rightly deserve. May our giving be pleasing to You and may we fall more in love with Your Son because we know that You delight in Your children. That You have blessed us in Him now and forevermore. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.